I'm Pam Druckerman, and this is Tell Me What You Really Think, where I sit down with innovators and changemakers to talk about the role of the media in these unsettling and chaotic times we're all living through. Today, I'm sitting down with the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, Radhika Jones. Since taking over in 2017, Jones has been busy repositioning Vanity Fair into a true cultural barometer, capturing the zeitgeist, but also... Imagine this, looking ahead to identify and uplift the most important and influential artists, activists, and intellectuals of our time. She also holds a PhD, which, by the way, I did not know. This is amazing. A PhD in English and comparative literature from Columbia University. I'm now afraid to put anything in front of you ever. I literally did not know that. We've worked together for a couple of years now. Radhika, welcome and thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. First off, I have to say it's so great to have a fellow Brooklyn friend here with me on the podcast. So you came to Connie Nast in 2017. Where did you start and how did you end up taking the helm at Vanity Fair? So my first job in journalism was in Moscow, Russia, at the Moscow Times. I ended up there after college and I had an undergraduate degree in English. So it felt like I had no real marketable skills, but it turned out that the skill that I had was that I could work as a copy editor at an English-language newspaper in Moscow. So wow. passing over a lot of complications about how I ended up there, that was my first job in media, and I started in 95, and it was a really chaotic time in Russia, not unlike today. Uh, but I really got addicted to the adrenaline that comes with being in a newsroom. Eventually, I became the editor of the arts section. But it was, you know, it was a small paper, so we kind of all pitched in on a lot of things. I was also the restaurant critic, which may <sighs> to date be um, my best ever job and probably the thing that I most aspire to return to. Um, reviewing restaurants in Moscow in the 1990s was a real trip. So I so I just got, <laughs> I got really into... Working Are you with a foodie, it. by the way, I, in general? I am a foodie, but I was not a foodie then. I had no business reviewing restaurants, I just want to say. <laughs> um, but but what it was was like a sociological experiment. I mean, this was not a country that had a big restaurant or cafe culture, but because after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, people started opening restaurants and sort of trying to actually entice a clientele to come and join them. And so there was a lot of so – there were a lot of interesting things about – like the nascent service industry. I mean, in America, it's been around forever. You know, we've always had the idea that the customer is always right, but that was not the case <laughs> in Moscow in 1996. I am here to tell you, um, not at all the case. So it was interesting and kind of, and it was also like the moment of like very, very fancy people had cell phones, but they and they were enormous. And, you know, it's like, it was like a status symbol. Like so the big you, flip phone. Yeah, like put it on the center of the table. Like yeah. it was a... Um, like my car phone. Remember the car phone? Yeah, the car phone. So it was like it became – what I realized actually is – I'm going to try to move this – I'm going to try to say something profound about my really mediocre restaurant reviews. But what I realized was that writing about culture, any aspect of it, ultimately is – it is trying to capture ways that societies change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's super interesting. Anyway, I was working at the paper. There was all of this flux and chaos in Russia at the time. And I got really excited about working with a team. It's a very collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. um, working on deadline. You know, we put the paper to bed every night at midnight. You had to make the deadline. Was it exciting or was yeah, it? It was super exciting. I mean, it was a wild 
time. I truly felt like I was away and I was in a different place. And that was really profoundly important. How long did you work there? Just two years, but it made an impact. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of the thing that got me into the idea of like being in publishing, being in news in particular Mm. and working with a team. And I came back to New York to start a PhD program at Columbia. But I really had that love of editing and collaborating. It had gotten into my blood and graduate school was great. And I was really happy to be reading very intensely. Did you like being a student? I have always loved being a student. But I mean, I feel like I'm still a student. Yeah. That's, you know, that's sort of my attitude about the world. But yes, I, I, I had always liked being a student. And that was part of the reason I applied to graduate school was I thought, well, I'm, I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to do more of it. I kind of want to do it until the until it stops. Yeah. So I came back to do the PhD, but I was like, well, this is, you know, but where are my deadlines? Um, graduate school is not known for enforcing deadlines in a robust way. So I started editing at this literary and arts magazine called Grand Street. And from there, I kind of, wow. I had this parallel track where I was doing coursework at Columbia. I was teaching, writing at Columbia, which was part of the program. I was studying for my oral exams where you read 100, 120 books and sit for three hours and talk about them. A very intense and amazing experience. And then on the other side, I was like zooming all around New York. I was hustling, which was great. Um, It's what we come to New York to do. Living a life, yeah. Yeah. So so I I had these parallel tracks and I ended up at the Paris Review and then and then at Time Magazine, um, and I ended up running two of the big franchises there, the Time 100 and the Person of the Year franchises. But then I, I sort of got involved in other parts of the coverage. And then I went to the New York Times, and and then I came to Vanity Fair. So it's like different kinds of publications, yeah. but always with this idea that you're sort of interpreting the world in some way. I have this question for you. Um, did you When you were like a kid, is this what you thought? thought you wanted to do when you grew up? No, I didn't know about editors when I was a kid. (laughs) I didn't know it was a thing. Um, We were not a big magazine household. My father was in the music business. He produced music festivals, um, jazz. He was a road manager. Wow. Um, He road managed Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk and a lot of jazz greats, and mostly in the 60s. And then that's insane. I had no idea. Yeah, he 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 went everywhere. He took he took Duke Ellington to then the Soviet Union, and he took Monk all over Europe. And um, he was a road manager for Sarah Vaughan. Oh my god, I love Sarah Vaughan. You and my dad have that in common. Well, my dad was a huge Sarah Vaughan fan Fuzzy, and brought Sarah yeah. Vaughan into our house, and like all the others that came with that at that time. Yeah. Um, I got to see her at Carnegie Hall when I was a kid. I, I'm so glad my parents brought us to these things when we were little because you do remember. You know? Yeah. So anyway, so we were surrounded by music, and it was very clear to us. I have, I'm the middle child. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Once my parents had three kids under the age of five, um, my father stopped road managing so much because my mom was like, maybe you shouldn't be leaving the house for six months at a time. <laughs> um, <laughs> She's smart. Yeah. But we, you know, so we were, it was a creative house, but it was, and it was also like, it was clear to us that his work was about lifting up talent. Yeah. He wasn't the guy on stage. He, back in, when he was very young, he was a, played guitar and sang. And so he knew what that was like, but he was the person who was going to make someone else famous. Right. He He provided the the platform. he, He provided the platform and he knew how to do everything. It was something that I 
have, you know, really come to appreciate about him now that I am an editor-in-chief is, like, he didn't ever ask anyone to do something that he didn't know how to do or he didn't understand. You know, he was, like, very hands-on. But he his goal in booking, say, the Newport Folk Festival was to have a great mix. It's like you have rising talent and you have established headliners. And the, and the whole idea is that people come and spend the day and they think they're coming for the headliner. But the thing that really makes them excited at the end of the day is that they discovered someone. Yeah, the emerging that, talent. Yeah, the emerging talent is really. And so we, we kind of grew up with this appreciation of how you draw people in. Yeah. you know, through the arts and give them a sense of community. And so that feels very obvious to me now, but it's a long time before I realized that that was something that drives me also. Like, through, But it's through my editorial work. Well, it's so interesting, too, because you, when you go down a path and like kind of think about like your upbringing and then you start getting into like your experience, what you got out of the Moscow Times and just talking about like, you know, talk about making culture and being a part of culture and being part of something that's so it was so unique in that moment, how that drove you to the next moment and what it meant to go back to graduate school and really be in New York City at that time. And the parallels between, in some ways, like what you've been doing at Vanity Fair, what you always wanted to do, and like, obviously, like, I don't know, the relationship that you had with your parents, it kind of all comes together. But I don't think you can ever see that when you're on the path. It's no. just kind of happening. Right. Let's talk about Vanity Fair for a minute. So since your first cover in April of 2018 featuring uh, Lena Waithe, one of my favorites, and your most recent cover featuring Lizzo, which is so baller. More than half of VF's covers have featured BIPOC and LGBTQ plus subjects. That's a big and welcome change for Vanity Fair to make. And since then, Hollywood has followed or Hollywood has changed in parallel. In a 2020 report, stats show increases in diversity, yet it still lags behind the American population with women representing 47% of film leads and only a paltry 22% of directors, which is just insane. Both male and female people of color represent 30% of directors and 32% of film writers. So I have to ask, we just talked about your first cover in 2018. Mm -hmm. We've referenced all the changes in Hollywood since then. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Vanity Fair actually led, it contributed to this change that we've started to see in Hollywood? I do think that we've contributed. And I think it comes out of a desire to put forward yeah. the kind of world and culture that we want to, to see. I mean, the talent is there. Lena was there. <laughs> she had already won an Emmy. She yeah. made this amazing speech. But I think that a cover is very meaningful in terms of saying, hey, this is the direction we want everyone looking in. Like, this is where, this is of someone who represents where we think and hope the culture is headed. And Hollywood is broad and multifaceted, and it would be hard to claim that it can be led yeah. in, in in a direct way. But I do think that making choices about covers and making choices about who we cover in general, I do think those things are meaningful in that community. And sometimes it can help crystallize ideas or, you know, subjects that people are kind of thinking about but maybe haven't, like, put into words or haven't put into an image that can galvanize them. Did Vanity Fair push Hollywood to become more diverse or were you simply reflecting the culture of the time? I would argue you were not reflecting the culture of the time. No, I think we were being aspirational about what we thought the culture could be if everybody got a shot. Yeah. And, um, and, and I mean, I just, you know, it's it's like, again, Lena Waithe had won an Emmy, which was historic. She had made this amazing speech. That's how that's how I discovered her through, and through her work. But but I think that I hope that what we were able to do, and not just with Lena, but with other covers as well, 
is just kind of assert that these are artists who are going to have longevity, that it's not just a moment, but it's that this is the future of Hollywood. Well, I feel like Vanity Fair opened up Hollywood, quite frankly. And to your point, like Lena was already there, lots of examples of amazing talent, lots of examples of amazing BIPOC and female talent that was already there. But I think Vanity Fair, again, in this example, provided the platform. I had um, David Remnick on an earlier episode of this podcast, and I asked him a question that relates to The New Yorker that I'm going to ask you as well. So where does Vanity Fair begin and Radhika end? Meaning, is Vanity Fair an extension of you, or is this brand just everything you believe in? Like, where do you think you begin and the brand ends? I think what I would say is that that what's always spoken to me about Vanity Fair is that it allows for its readers, and I would count myself among them, and now it's, it's viewers and it's listeners, depending on how you were encountering us. It allows for us to have a really great, fun, gonzo range of curiosity. And I go back to what Tina Brown, who was the editor in the 80s and early 90s, really perfected about the magazine, which was this mix of high and low culture. I don't even know if I would use those terms anymore. I think it's not quite like that. But I know what she means, which is like you can be a person like me with a PhD in English literature Mm -hmm. and you can, you know, care a lot about Game of Thrones and you can also want to read about a person running for senator in Florida and you can hold all of these interests in your head. You know, you don't have to be put in a box. You can can care about the Oscar race and about red carpet – fashion, but you can also care about a woman's right to choose. And um, and you can delight in a really great picture of Lizzo. And I mean, it sounds very obvious, but mm-hmm. I think that sometimes with publications, there's a sense of, of like, well, our audience's interests are very specific and they are X or Y, and we're going to play to those things. And for the Vanity Fair audience and for all of us who work there, there's a kind of freedom to be interested in a lot of things. And in a way, it's like that's the common ground. It's like we're sort of obsessive about all these things. But think about it from this perspective, right? We live in a world in which everyone loves talking about the creator's economy now, right? And we're coming not out of a world, but we're still very focused on when I say we, like the industry loves to talk about the influencer. Mm -hmm. I look at you and I think you are probably one of the most important influencers in the world. You've built a platform for one of the most important voices in Hollywood, right? And so when you think about your role as influencer, what part of this is specifically tied to your passion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What would you say that is? Um, that's a good question. It's funny because when we when we look at story pitches, my team and I, something come, will come in and we'll be like, "This is peak Vanity Fair." You I know love that it's kind of it does feel. I mean, we're look, we're lucky to have this platform with this amazing archive and also an amazing future. I, I think. I think there are a few things. I mean, that the Lena Waithe cover is very close to my heart because, mm-hmm. and I went to that shoot, and and I, you know, obviously have followed Lena's career since, and I, and I feel like these jobs do come down to taste on some level. I mean, there's at the end of the day, mm. there is someone making the decision. I mean, to your point about influence, one of the things that 
we're interested in at Vanity Fair is larger-than-life personalities um, mm-hmm. because they tend to wield power in interesting ways, not despotic necessarily, but like interesting ways. So we're always looking for those, like who are the people who are larger than life and who are the people who transcend the medium that they're in, even if they're already excellent at it and and all of that. But I think there's also, there's another facet of it that leads me to talk about the September 2020 issue that we did with Amy Sherald's portrait of Breonna Taylor on the cover, which is that we have the permission from our audience and the authority to deploy fine art and illustration and photography and storytelling and and first-person writing and profiles. We have the ability and the authority to deploy those things in support of values and principles that we hold dear. And that issue was incredibly fulfilling to me. We, we brought in ta Coates to work on it w- with us, and it, you know, it was the summer of protests after the murder of George Floyd, and, and it was also that first very intense COVID summer, and everything was sort of desperate and upsetting. And I was able to channel all of my emotions about it into that work. The ability to kind of do what we do in the service of a bigger idea, yeah, that is really exciting to me. I think, and it sounds like, you know, I think the best part of our jobs, if we're doing them right, is that, like, we're, we're doing something we love. Yes, yes. Um, and we're able to, and, and again, like, you're, you're a journalist, you're an editor, you're a reader, you're a scholar, all of these things. But the Vanity Fair platform is such an important one. And you talked about these people of interest and these power dynamics and the paradigm that is Vanity Fair in and of itself. And so to think about, you know, your first cover being Lena and what that meant and to think about that September 2020 cover and what was going on after George Floyd's murder and the story and the way that you told that story and the way that Vanity Fair told that story at that time. And the interesting thing is, is like, yes, like culture was happening around us and Vanity Fair was kind of like reporting on the culture. But at the same time, I would argue, was actually asking a lot of the questions Mm -hmm. and was changing and helping to shape the narrative in a way that I think was so important. And not just for the audience of Vanity Fair, but also for, and I think you kind of said it, it felt like a desperate time. I think people were trying to make sense of what was going on in 2020. What I think is interesting is when you think about who, you know, even in in this moment in time, when you think about how big your audience actually is now, right, because you started to go there, Mm -hmm. you have, I mean, you're reaching millions of people across multiple platforms. I mean, Vanity Fair started out as a magazine, and now it has a massive social following across multiple platforms. Um, And it has, I would argue, a bigger audience than it ever has had and a more engaged audience than it ever has had. It's got to feel even more weighted in some ways in terms of who you put on those covers today. And so I would ask in your moment of time, like, who is your, and it's going to be hard for you to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway, who is your most coveted cover get with all of the, with all the things that we're talking about? Who would you say is, you know, in the last, and you've been here since 2017, who would you say was one of the most important gets for Vanity Fair? No, I never answer this question. I know, but it's such a good one. <laughs> I'll, Love quirky. I'll tell you one. Okay. Which is Bob Dylan, because... <sighs> Bob Dylan. He, you know, one of the things about Bob Dylan is that photographers just are dying to photograph him, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really do photo shoots like that anymore. So it's a little, there's like a 
there's a great yeah you know everybody wa- everybody wants to get him get a sitting within him and and obviously he's he's bob he's, dylan he's bob dylan he's a legendary american figure in the arts and in the culture and i have expressed my interest <laughs> <laughs> Vanity Fair is synonymous with Hollywood, as we've touched upon. And there's a really fun part about Hollywood. And sounds like your job is like right at the center of that. Um, and we're going to come back to, by the way, all the things that you're watching and all the things that for work, because you have to work so hard on like going to those screenings and everything else. But um, I'd love to know what's on your list. But awards se- season is coming up. Obviously, Vanity Fair and Oscars like go hand in hand. And as we lead up to Oscars, there's a whole kind of phenomenon around what we call FYC. Can you tell our listeners what FYC actually means in your world? I shouldn't say fun young cannibals. Right? <laughs> no. I'm a Gen Xer. I, I, I love acronyms. Um, fine young cannibals. FYC stands for a four-year consideration, and it's kind of the, tr- the trade jargon um, around advertising specific to the awards season and the kind of campaigning that studios and now streamers do um, to get their – Films noticed to get the performances noticed. You'll see it in advertisements for your consideration. And the your in that equation is whoever the power brokers are. It's the people who vote on the Emmys, the people who vote on the Oscars. It's a genteel invitation to consider. Got Uh, it. So what's on your own consideration list at the moment? So I have not seen... Anywhere near everything, but I have seen a few things. Sounds like you haven't working that hard, actually. Um, you know, it's really, on your on your own definition. It's really hard to get out of the office for a screening, <laughs> but I will say it's really it's been lovely to actually go to screenings again after um, our bet. COVID isolation. It's been nice to just go to a theater. So I've seen a couple of films that really stuck with me. I actually saw two days in a row. She said, and Women Talking, both of which, very different films, she said, is based on Jodie Cantor and mm-hmm. Megan Toohey's book about breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. Riveting. Women Talking is about a crime. It's so intense, I, I'm not even going to get into it. But okay. it, um, it's a, it's a, Who's directed it? by Sarah Polly. Claire Foy is in it, Jesse Buckley. It's, they're both terrific. Both of them left me feeling like we still have a lot of problems to solve in the world, particularly around women. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, to be sure. clear, women are not the problem. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, so, you know, intense, but the performances are great. I really want to see The Fablemans, Spielberg movie. I have not yet seen Tar, but I can say absolutely objectively and scientifically that everybody's talking about Kate Blanchett's performance in Tar. Why is that? Um, because apparently it's very good. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes. I love her. Nothing less than we would expect. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I feel like movies are back. So they never is, left, well, but that's, they're back. That's true. I want to talk to you about, you, you kind of started to go there about watching screenings in theaters again. Mm-hmm. So... It's kind of amazing, even with like the the fumes of COVID, that um, we're back in theaters. Would you say that we're back in theaters, or do you think it's still a streaming world? Is it a balance? Do you think the theaters are going to be like it's going to be very retro again, and like the theaters are going to be packed again, and like we're going to go back into the world that we were in before? I do think people are back in the theaters. I mean, certainly, certainly 
Top Gun Maverick was a, th- a theater mm-hmm. drawing film. Um, the Woman King did really well. Um, but there were some big, bold statements by some pretty big executives. I won't name names that were like, you know, the theaters are dead. Everything is in streaming. Like, why would someone want to go to the theater when they could just like watch in their home? I think that's BS. Yeah. I mean, look, I think people will do IRL. Both. I think people people will do both. And I do think that certain films or experiences just lend themselves to being present. Um, totally. Agree. And and I, and look, like we are blessed to live in an era where you can watch many, many movies at home. I mean, if you had told me when I was 11, you know, back in the era of like, oh, I want to hear this song. So I'm going to wait for it to come on the radio and then like press record on my cassette deck. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> really dating myself here. But, you know, I mean, the idea that you have like an iPod where the song just is there and now Spotify and now and now you can watch you don't have to wait for Thanksgiving to watch the sound of music right if you were so inclined I feel like that's an amazing thing and and not to be taken for granted but I do think that also sitting in a movie theater with some popcorn is pretty amazing and we can now have both so that's cool it's great that there's still amazing content coming out but I will say what has been a challenge has been a, a award shows mm-hmm. you and I both know that viewership is consistently down and so even with like you know if you think about what producers have tried to do to turn that around viewers are continually less engaged now it's been good good for Vanity Fair because we're, we're seeing you know we're getting more and more of their time um, and we know they're obsessed with the Oscars and they're very obsessed with what's going to happen around the Oscars. But the actual like award show itself, mm-hmm. that like, what is it, three and a half hours to four hour period now has been an ongoing challenge. What do you think is going on there? I mean, I, I think for more than a decade, TV audiences have been fracturing and fewer and fewer people even have cable or have the means by which to watch these shows. And I think there's also a lot of kind of second screen as first screen going on, which is to say, like, people are sort of keeping up with it as the show is going on through social media. And they're right. sort of like, oh, I'll tune in if I need to. Right. Well, there's because, Twitter now. Well, I right. So see. we have all these other ways to kind of interact with what the show is without point. actually watching the show. And look, I, I think that people need to feel invested in the content of whatever awards are in question. And but they want to, and they want to feel like they're going to see an event. That- but I mean, you just bring up a really good point. The, the irony is the Oscars itself, like consumers, people, we're also like obsessed with who's getting nominated. You know, we obviously like have our like skin in the game in terms of like you know who, how the red carpet. There's like all this content, but the reality is there's so many different ways to access the content now. The experience itself is still drawing all of this interest. It's just in all these fragmented places. Yes, like I think it's a mistake to think that because the ratings are down for the show that people don't care about the Oscars. I it's think an amazing that's point. a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just more complicated than that. And there are a lot of different ways now for audiences to sort of express their interest. And, and you know, and we know this because we, we are covering, we're not just parachuting in for the Oscars. We're Correct. covering film festivals. We're covering, and we're covering, you know, film releases and controversies around them and all, all of it and the red carpet and, and everything. And so we have this audience with us mm-hmm. pretty much year round that cares deeply about film and cares about who wins awards because, as we believe, and I think our audience believes, mm-hmm. you know, it 
it's not the be-all and end-all. It doesn't mean that a film wasn't great if it doesn't nominate it or doesn't win, but it can be a deeply symbolic and resonant moment. I think of being at the Oscar party in 2020 when Parasite won Best Picture. Yep. And I mean, what an incredible film. And just the energy around that film during that award season was really, it, it was just Electric. And so I, I think that there, you know, there are reasons to care mm -hmm. and we're attentive to those. Um, but but I think that there are a lot of different ways for people to manifest that they care. Really the thing. There's so many different gateways. I call it Vanity Fair does as an example as like surround sound. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like it's not just coming at you from like, you know, it isn't just the award show and it isn't just the red carpet. It isn't just the nominees leading up to it. It isn't just all the festivals leading up to it. It's all of it. Right. Yeah. And it's not just on your big screen. It's not just on your smartphone. It's not just like on your desktop. It's kind of everywhere. And it's not just on a social platform. It's not just through your streaming service. I mean, it's everywhere. So it's like. You know, I do think the approach is more decentralized, but right. the reality is the consumer journey is in a lot of different places. And obviously, I think Vanity Fair has done a great job. I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I really do believe that. One of the things that I think Vanity Fair does so well is it hosts this Oscar party mm -hmm. um, every familiar, year. Yes. Yeah, you've been. <clears throat> it's kind of amazing. It is the most coveted ticket in town. I've seen you in action, and you always look so cool and collected. I don't know how you do it. It is literally <laughs> the after party. So the Oscars happens. There's all the winners. Then there's this, like, private party that, like, a couple hundred people get invited to, and it's invitation only. You cannot hack into the party, even if you tried. Um, and there's always a lot of debate around the party, and everyone's always talking about the party, but everyone wants to go. And then if you actually get to go there, it's, like, literally – Every celebrity that you've ever dreamed of and in one place that's so much so that nobody there is a celebrity, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, it's just, and I would imagine for most celebrities, like, they're always a celebrity somewhere because everyone's not a celebrity, unless you're at the Vanity Fair Oscar party. And so then it's just like range of celebrity. All right, so now that I set the stage, so you're there milling around as if, like, you know, it's like Brad Pitt over here, like Sarah Polly over there, whatever it is. Is there someone that makes you nervous that you fangirl over? No, but I'll tell you over the years, like, who I've okay. been super excited to okay. meet a few people. Um, Joni Mitchell came to the party. Oh, my God. What a, I love her so much. And that was really mm. wonderful. Um, Diana Ross. Oh, my God. Um, love her. I get mm -hmm. to meet Mark Hamill at the party. Oh. A Jedi Knight. That must have been very exciting yep. for you. Um, so. <laughs> you, and my, you and my wife would have been excited about that. Those are, those are a few. Um yeah, it's always it. It's fun because it's the very end of this very long and grueling season. And again, um, everybody makes it look so glamorous and exciting, and it is. But it's also a lot of work for all the people involved. You yeah. know, the people who are out there. I hate to. I mean, the the word is campaigning. It's not. It's not obviously quite that. But the people who are out there being considered for awards and stuff. They. Yeah. It's a it's a grueling circuit. A lot of travel. A lot of appearances. And at our party. The Oscars are done. The whole, all the award shows that precede it, the BAFTAs, the SAG Awards, everything, it's done. People can relax. They do relax. And I feel like my goal is to just double down on that. It's like, a, it's a very chill. <laughs> I mean, it's buzzy. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's, it's like all you have to do is hang out. That is what we strive for is just to, to really emphasize the idea that like this is the party after all. After all of the work, people can let their hair down. Anyway, yes, well, we have fun. The Van Vanity Fair that I love is about so many things. Hollywood obviously being a, a big part of the brand. But 
politics is also, I think, a really important throughway. Vanity Fair sits at the intersection of power. We talked about this a little bit and mm-hmm. influence not only in Hollywood, but in D.C. But I want to note for our listeners that we're recording this interview prior to the midterm elections, uh, but it will air post-election. Politically speaking, this year has been nothing short of intense. There are typical issues of the economy and inflation that are cyclical and then issues that are kind of a, a, a punch in our gut. For example, the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson essentially overturning Roe v. Wade and stripping, you know, people like us of our national protection of abortion rights. Were you surprised by this decision? And in addition to that, what was your initial reaction? Mm -hmm. I mean, I was not surprised because we know the new makeup of the court. Mm -hmm. And so I think observers had felt that this was inevitable and then it happened. I mean, I was devastated, but mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised. And I took it very personally because on the day that I was born in January of 1973, Roe, the the decision, the Roe decision was on the front page of the New York Times. So it had, it had happened crazy. the day before and it was on the front page on the day that I was born. So, so I have this association with that particular right as something that I have lived with as a woman in America my entire life, literally. So I felt really aggrieved personally, as well as politically, that this was no longer the case. And, you know, I happened to be flying out of the country that day, and I I went to London, and then we spent a little time in Scotland. and, And everywhere we went, people were appalled. <laughs> and it just, it really was a reminder to me that it happened to us in America. Mm-hmm. And I think that many of us took it personally, as we should. It's mm-hmm. about our personal lives and our mm-hmm. bodies. But it also happened to the world. And people in other countries who look to America to lead on certain issues, especially around rights, given the founding of our nation, um, they were almost equally stunned and devastated because they felt like we had gone down the wrong path. And it just creates this sort of social, cultural instability. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that was weighing heavily on my mind. We talked about how you had taken your feelings and put it into action around, you know, what happened around George Floyd's murder back Mm -hmm. in 2020, the September of 2020 Mm -hmm. issue. And then again, now here we are in this kind of like, it feels like another inflection point around women's rights. And you decided to redirect your feelings into action by asking the priestess herself, Gloria Steinem, (laughs) to take on special contributing editor role. What was your goal here? And what are are you hoping to achieve? Well, I happened to meet Gloria I'd spend a little time with her at this event that I was at. For I serve on the board of CARE, the humanitarian organization, and we there was a little CARE event, and she was there, and we got to talking about magazine making, which is something that's dear to her heart as one of the founding editors of Ms., which also turned 50 this fall, so which is super crazy. interesting to think like that Ms. was founded basically a few months before Roe, so that there was this kind of crystallization of um, all of these issues. We had talked about magazine making, and she was saying, oh, I really miss, like, putting a magazine together. And I sort of filed that away because so I was like, well, maybe I can <laughs> tempt her. <laughs> and, then, and then if the occasion arises, I thought, well, I uh, this is a good opportunity for me to reach out. And Gloria and her team were just terrific. It was 
so good to talk to her about all of it this past summer because she is, on the one hand, she's been such a guiding light and an mm -hmm. idealist. She's also a pragmatist, you know. She was the first person to sort of remind me in my despair, like, look, it is a blow, but mm -hmm. but it is still legal to get an abortion in many states in America. You know, right. it is, it's, it's not... Um, well, she has the broader view. Too. She has a historical view of it, a broader view of it. She remembers what it was like to yeah. fight for abortion rights. She knows it can be done. Right. Um, and so we worked with her on a few pieces for the issue, including a look back at the archives of Ms., which is amazing when you look at the first year of Ms. and you see all of these spreads. And literally, it's the same questions. It's about abortion rights. It's, it's about child care for the workplace. It's about like all the things that you would think we would have solved by now. But and so there's a version of that where you can get very, very depressed about it or yeah. you can feel like, no, you know what? Like we are still mobilized. <laughs> we have to get to work. And that's very much her. Well, Attitude. I, I thought the November issue itself was outstanding. One of the pieces that stood out to me is where you interview real women on the front lines of abortion. Mm -hmm. It was a really like well-reported piece. I just kept thinking like, what was Gloria Steinem thinking when this happened? Was she thinking like, of course this was going to happen because like, you know, progress is always about three steps forward and two steps back. Or was she kind of like, are you effing kidding me? Or was she like, you know, it's like all that work I did only to watch it kind of like burn down. What Did she have like a specific answered in that regard or, or sentiment? You know, the, the real, the thing you come away from when you talk to her is that she's very hopeful. I love that. It's great. We need hope. <laughs> it's great. It's true. But you also, it also reminds you that like, you know, it, there is no straight line, right? Yeah, like no, it, it's a constant, no. you know, and we have to try to teach no. my kids that. And and one of the reasons that we wanted to focus on women who are working in, in particularly in states where, you know, there are going to be now legal challenges to, yeah two laws on the books that went into effect after Dobbs um, that really focus on some of the scarier parts of this issue, like the life of the mother and, you know, that kind of thing. We felt that it was very important for our readers, we're a national magazine, to know that degree of granular work that's happening in advocacy and legal work that's yeah. happening in places like Texas. And Dobbs felt so monumental and final, but in fact, there are a lot of places where a good fight is being waged, and we just wanted people to be aware of that. And in particular, we wanted to do it before the midterms. To lighten things up a bit, I need to talk to you about the royals. Vanity Fair has you know, long been known for royal watching. You guys even have a narrative podcast called Dynasty, and given recent events, Vanity Fair has kept users and readers up to speed on all inside gossip. First of all, are you personally obsessed with royals? No, I've always been interested in the royal family. I mean, one of my Areas of specialty in graduate school was the 19th century novel, uh, the Victorian novel. And so I, you know, I'm just very... I'm <laughs> I literally need to sit down with you like every day to do this. I'm just very interested in the, the monarchy, its evolution, you know, as an institution of soft power. Like watch The Crown. I like definitely watch The Crown. Uh, I loved, I loved The Crown and... But I, no, it it has always been of interest. I'm old enough to remember Charles and Diana's wedding, and then of course Diana's funeral. And there aren't that many events anymore that really capture the world's attention the way that the the period of, of mourning after Diana died and her funeral that that really it it captured the world. It seems like since the Queen's passing, there's a more engaged interested and focused, at least 
American around what's going on with the royal family and the throne being passed to Charles. Like it's that whole patriarch like obsession about who's going to get it next. And we're just kind of perpetuating all of it through this level of interest. Well, we are very interested in succession mm-hmm. in general mm-hmm. as a concept, also as a television show. Oh, uh, we're going to get back we're to that. We're very interested in powerful family. I mean, I'm talking about we, like in general, yes. Americans. Like it's, it would Not be just wrong to Radica. say. I mean, yes, there's it is it is a monarchy and there are different, you know, there's a different relationship to the government and different financial realities that are in play there. But it's not like Americans are immune to dynastic families or to the idea that power passes from father to son or now to daughter. Yeah. And so I feel like in a way, in being interested in the royal family is just sort of a heightened version of that. And it's also the stakes are low for us mm-hmm. because they are not our royal family. But but we are across the pond. And so there's a drama to it also that I think comes into play. It's like watching, mm-hmm. it is like watching a show. I mean, there's a, the, the crown resonates partly because it's a show that we've already been watching. And I think the interest in it since the queen died has to do with the fact that she lived such a long life mm-hmm. and spanned so many generations and was a living connection to history. We knew that eventually the throne would pass. It's kind of bracing to see it happen. Yeah. And I think there's just curiosity about, well, how how much longer can this go on? And and what does it, you know, what does it look like? Well, if, uh, speaking of watching that show, what is going to happen with Harry and Meghan? My guess is that they will remain in the U.S. in part at least because their relationship with the press in the U.K. was very toxic and very different from the way mm-hmm. it is here. So I think that, I mean, and that has always been what Harry has said was really a defining factor for him. But for now, it seems like they are living the good life in California. Okay, well, we are almost done. But before you go, I'm going to ask you a few final questions. So tell me what you really think. Choose a Harry. Harry Styles or Harry Windsor? Harry Styles. Oh, really? Love that. Um, What keeps you up at night? I fall asleep very easily. Do you really? (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) I know. I I hesitate because I just... With I, substances or just like no, you no. just pass off gently. I compartmentalize. Oh, that's really good. That's you can detach. Mm, I that's detach. Good. Yeah. If you had to give twelve-year-old Radika one piece of advice, what would it be? Eventually, you will find jeans that fit you. <laughs> First of all, I find that hard to believe. I had seven. a growth spurt, and they didn't make the sizing was different then. Just uh, name at least one celebrity on the cover of this year's Hollywood issue. No. Go. Absolutely not. God damn it. I thought I could get you out of there. All right. Thank you, Radhika. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Pam. Amazing to have you on. And I'm really um, excited to see what 2023 is going to behold for Vanity Fair. Keep up the great work. Tell Me What You Really Think is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. I'm Pam Druckerman. Come hang with us next week.